Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Dark as Hell. If this is your first time joining us, well, hey, hi to you too. <laughs> I'm your host, Maggie. This week, I'm going to be telling you a story about one of the cases that, ever since I first heard about it, has seriously baffled me with its twists and turns, and of course the hashtag fucking questions it's presented over the years. Few times of the college academic year are as fun and happy as those first few weeks back at school. Reuniting with your friends after months apart, diving into new classes that spark something genuinely academic inside of you, the triumphant return to your favorite fraternities or local bars, and just reveling in your own independence once again. Bryce Laspisa no doubt felt the same. He was just starting his sophomore year at Sierra College in Rockland, California, and had come back to campus two weeks prior to the year officially starting to settle into his new apartment. He was excited about his graphic and industrial design classes that would let him explore his innate talent for drawing more deeply. His new apartment also came with his good friend Sean Dixon as his roommate. He was happy to be back with his girlfriend Kim Sly, who he adored. And generally speaking, the happiness Bryce was known to always exude just shined through him as he began to take on his second year of college. And then, on August 30th, 2013, following three days of erratic behavior and unexplainable actions, Bryce Lespisa simply disappeared and has never been heard from since. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. Bryce Laspisa was 19 years old in August 2013, and he was the only child of Michael and Karen Laspisa. He had a shock of bright, bright red hair, big blue eyes, and a smile that would make Crest toothpaste models weep. His ears were pierced, and he had two tattoos, the largest of which was a piece that took up the majority of his upper left bicep and part of his shoulder, and it was of a bull to shout out his Taurus zodiac sign. Bryce actually grew up in Illinois, though the family had relocated to California so his parents could retire after he graduated high school. While his parents lived in Laguna Niguel, Bryce was a student at Sierra College in Rockland, which was about eight hours away. If he wasn't on campus or at his apartment, Bryce was most likely spending time with his girlfriend, Kim who had an apartment of her own in Chico, which was about 90 miles from his place. And as a Rhode Islander, let me just say, it is wild that a 90 mile drive is considered somewhat of the norm in California. <laughs> 90 miles is quite literally the size of two Rhode Islands. So the concept of driving that far to hang out on the daily with a significant other is just like bonkers to me. <laughs> Bryce's mother claims that she and Michael had a, quote, very open relationship with Bryce in that the three of them were close and Bryce felt comfortable talking to them about almost everything. He was known to be a generally good kid with a good group of friends. He loved design and drawing as evidenced by his decision to study graphic industrial design, and it was a talent that he was still developing. However, Despite everything seemingly going so well for Bryce as he started his second year of college, 
things started to take a turn for the weird on Tuesday, August 26th. Tuesday of August 26th, Bryce attended his second day of classes for the semester. It sounds like he was moving into a new apartment and wanted to get all that settled before the semester started. So remember, Bryce had already been back on campus for two weeks at this point. Around 5 p.m. that day, Bryce allegedly called his mother. A quick chat told her about his classes, and by Karen's account, it was a, quote, good and normal conversation. Apparently, the family even received a photo of Bryce that day looking happy and posing with a new Madden video game. However, just a few hours later, Bryce's behavior would become erratic to those on campus with him. In an interview later with police, Bryce's girlfriend Kim would tell him that she, verbatim, thought Bryce, quote, wasn't in his right mind. According to Kim, that night Bryce was, quote, acting strange and admitted he took that pill. That pill Kim references is apparently Vyvanse, which is a very powerful ADHD medication. The culture of using and abusing ADHD meds and other stimulants on college campuses isn't exactly a new phenomenon, unless we forget that famous Saved by the Bell episode when Jesse Spanos absolutely wigs the fuck out because she's so excited on caffeine pills. Bryce had apparently been attending the Jesse Spanos School of Thought because he was known throughout his friend group to use Adderall to stay up for long periods of time, though he wasn't prescribed it. On top of that, Bryce was reportedly drinking a lot during these first two weeks back at campus. His roommate, Sean Dixon, would go on to tell police that Bryce was drinking up to two-fifths of liquor a weekend. So Homeboy was really pounding back some drinks. Sean also backed up Kim's account of Bryce's prescription drug misuse. He shared with police that on that same Tuesday night, the 26th, Bryce had indeed taken Vyvanse to help him stay awake during what would be a marathon of video gaming until the early morning. Sean would tell police that during the course of those two weeks before classes started, Bryce had, quote, indicated something was bothering him, but he never came out and said exactly what it was. Not only that, but Bryce had actually started giving away some of his prized possessions to his friends, a pair of diamond earrings his mother had given him, as well as his beloved Xbox. Between the heavy drinking increased use of ADHD meds that weren't prescribed to him, these strange comments and even stranger behavior, it isn't hard to see why Bryce's friends were starting to become worried about him. The next day, Wednesday, August 27th, is the day I like to refer to in this case as the day shit started really getting weird. There's not much known about what exactly happened throughout the day, but things pick up and kick off that night. At around 10 p.m., Bryce apparently unexpectedly showed up at Kim's apartment in Chico. Remember, this is a 90-mile drive for Bryce to make, and so to do so unexpectedly suggests that something is afoot. And there was something afoot already, because Bryce had actually broken up with Kim over text earlier in the day, claiming that she would be, quote, better off without him. Which, I mean, that right there, please, let's just add that to the growing list of weird shit Bryce is saying, Tally. As far as I can ascertain, it sounds like Sean, Bryce's roommate, must have called Bryce's mother after Bryce left their apartment. Sean was nervous about Bryce as his weird behavior was 
only getting weirder. He ends up telling Karen about Bryce's bizarre behavior the day before, including giving away his diamond earrings and Xbox. For having such an allegedly close parent-child relationship, Sean was actually the one who told Karen about Bryce breaking up with Kim over text. And that wasn't the only weird text Bryce sent. Sean had received one himself that stated, quote, I love you, bro. Seriously. You're the best person I've ever met and you saved my soul. Which, one, what? <laughs> and then two, all weird texts aside, what the hell actually happened throughout the course of the night that Sean, another college-aged dude bro, felt so concerned to call his roommate's parents to tell them his concerns about their son? At this point, around 10.30 p.m., Karen gets another call. And this time, it's from Kim. Kim tells Karen that she's also concerned about Bryce because of how strange he's acting at her apartment at that moment. She goes so far as to tell Karen that she's taken Bryce's keys from him because she doesn't think he's fit to drive. Later, during a police interview, Kim would tell the cops that she believed Bryce was on Vivance again and drunk which is why she took his keys. Kim's roommate was also there at the time, and in her own police interview, she backed up Kim's statement. Bryce was acting increasingly erratic, and something seemed to be terribly wrong. What I want to know is, what happened at Kim's apartment that alarmed her so much? There have been whispers on various Reddit and web sleuth boards about what precisely unfolded but that's never been made fully public or been officially verified, though they are pretty interesting claims to consider. What was Bryce doing and saying to make his girlfriend, well, I guess ex-girlfriend technically, <laughs> so freaked out by him that Kim took his keys and became the second person in that same day to call his mother about his off-putting behavior? Thinking back to my own college days, there was such a feeling of protecting and proving your independence, of being able to handle things on your own for the first time as a fledgling adult. It strikes me that whatever happened between Tuesday and Wednesday night must have reached a real breaking point for Bryce's friends. As a college kid, if you're bringing parents into any situation, it means something has gone seriously fucking wrong and you yourself can no longer handle it alone. I also think it's important to keep in mind going forward that there is, as we'll come to see, just a weird dichotomy between the way Bryce's parents viewed their son in comparison to what the people who were actually physically present with Bryce during these events were telling them was happening with their son. There's seeing things through rose-colored glasses, and then there's willfully choosing to be in denial. I'll leave it at that for now. In any regard, Bryce manages to take his phone back from Kim and speak to his mother himself. With his mother asking him, uh, what the hell is going on? Bryce claims that he's perfectly fine to drive and that he just wants his keys so he can go home. He even went so far as to claim that Kim took his keys because she was upset he had broken up with her, which, like, wow, not a fan of that. That just seems petty and unnecessary to say. <laughs> Listening to all of this, Karen at least realizes that something is going on that's not in alignment with the happy Bryce picture they just gotten the day before, literally and metaphorically. She then suggests to Bryce, quote, why don't I fly up there tomorrow? But Bryce shoots her down. 
Instead, he tells her not to make any flight plans because he, quote, had a lot to talk to her about. Karen had no idea what this was alluding to, but Bryce had sold her on the idea that he was fine to drive. She got back on the phone with Kim, asked her to give Bryce his keys back, and told Bryce to call her when he got back to his apartment. At this point, I have to sidebar here because what the fuck did Bryce mean? <laughs> no one has ever come forward with a hard and fast explanation for what Bryce was referring to when he spoke with his mother. His roommate, Sean, already said that Bryce had indicated something was bothering him, but he never knew what it could be about. His parents claim that they, too, have allegedly no idea what it was Bryce seemed so troubled by. I think a lot of the answers we're looking for would be found if we knew what exactly Bryce so desperately needed to talk to his parents about. At 11.30 p.m., Bryce leaves Kim's apartment in Chico under the assumption he is driving the 90 miles back to his own apartment in Rockland. At 1 a.m., he places a call to his mother. She assumes he is back at his apartment and thinks nothing more of the matter. However, cell phone tower records would disprove this assumption entirely. Bryce was nowhere near his apartment, and no one could say for sure where he was going. The next day, Thursday, August 29th, the Los Pieces are going about their day when they get a phone call at 11 a.m. State Farm was calling to confirm that they had just given the roadside assistance that one of their cars had requested. The car State Farm was referring to was obviously Bryce's, and obviously Bryce's parents had no idea what was going on. Immediately, Karen starts trying to call Bryce to no avail, so they both start looking for clues as to where he might be. Karen calls Sean, who confirms their worst assumption. Bryce never actually arrived home the night before, and Sean hadn't heard from him since he had headed out to Kim's apartment. While Karen is on the phone with Sean, Michael spots a charge on one of their credit cards to Castro Truck and Tire Repair in Buttonwillow which is a town about three hours away from their home in Laguna Niguel and 350 miles from Bryce's apartment in Chico. So what the hell is he doing there? Michael calls the shop and an employee named Christian answers the phone. A huge stroke of luck because not only does he turn out to be the unsung hero of this whole affair, but Christian had actually just seen Bryce since he was the one who had delivered three gallons of gas to him after Bryce called them for help since he ran out of gas. Christian had brought him the gas about an hour and a half earlier, but he offered to go see on the off chance if Bryce still happened to be there. About 15 minutes later, the Las Pieces get another call. It's Christian again, and he's shocked. Bryce is just where he left him at 9 a.m. Christian puts Bryce on the phone and, dumbfounded, Karen asks him, what the hell is he doing? Bryce claims that nothing is wrong, that he just ran out of gas, and he was actually making his way to Laguna Niguel. Christian tells Karen that Bryce seems lucid and well enough, despite having eyes that look a little red, so Karen simply tells Bryce to get more gas and hurry the fuck home. Bryce promised that he would be there around 3 p.m. that afternoon. Three o'clock comes, and three o'clock goes. To the shock of none of us true crime veterans, Bryce didn't show. Karen said that leading up to 3 p.m. and afterwards, she only kept getting Bryce's voicemail. She allegedly called several times and left countless of messages, and to be honest, 
I, for one, would love to hear what those messages said. As the hours dragged on, by 6 p.m. with still no word, the list pieces had finally cracked, and they filed a missing persons report. With the police involved, the list pieces were granted an emergency ping order from AT&T to see if they could locate Bryce with his cell phone. Once they received the results of the emergency order, they were shocked, and not at least a little bit baffled. Not only did the AT&T search show them where Bryce was, it showed the list pieces a new reason to be worried about their son. Because Bryce, he was still in Buttonwillow, nine hours after he had first arrived there, and seven hours after he had promised his mother he was on his way home. In fact, he was only eight miles from where Christian, the truck stop employee, had brought gas to him at 9 a.m. that morning. Because the list pieces had been in contact with the police at this point, the California Highway Patrol sent officers out to find Bryce and basically ask him, what the fuck are you doing, dude? <laughs> and at 9 p.m., patrol officers arrive at Bryce's car, still in Buttonwillow, and essentially ask him that question. Though Bryce had barely moved in hours, the officers on the scene reported that he was lucid, acting normal, and he even passed the field sobriety test that they put him through. Bryce gave the officers permission to search his car, and they found no drugs or alcohol in the vehicle. Chatting with them while they conducted the search, Bryce told the police officers that he was merely, quote, blowing off steam and was actually going to, quote, hang out with some friends later, which, what the hell does that even mean? But I guess that was beside the point for the officers or Karen to make a note of in the moment. Search completed, sobriety test passed. The officers were in a conundrum. They couldn't really do anything more than they already had because the only thing that they could find strange about the situation was Bryce seemingly simply taking his sweet-ass time to finish his drive home. Actually, there was one more instance of weirdness going on that the police witnessed when they were with Bryce on the side of the highway. For whatever reason, Bryce practically refused to call his mother when the officers told him that it would be a good idea to do so after dodging their calls for the last nine hours. His reluctance was noticeable enough that one of the patrol officers quite literally had to dial the number on Bryce's phone and physically put it in his hand to let Karen know he was, by their estimation, fine. Mind you, this is hour 22 of whatever the fuck is going on with Bryce, and it's here I need to sidebar with you guys. This is the point where Karen claims that she first, quote, got worried. And I'm just like, this, 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 this is hour 22 of your son trying to make a six, seven, eight hour drive. This is when you get worried? This is just one of the most baffling and frustrating parts of the whole case. And it's a question brought up over and over again whenever its circumstances are reviewed. Why didn't Bryce's parents simply just go get him? He was three hours from home. Hell, why didn't they get more involved after those numerous phone calls from his friends on Wednesday telling him that they, college students who typically practice the concept of CYA, cover your ass, that they were genuinely concerned and frightened by Bryce's behavior? When they first got the alert from State Farm that his car had needed roadside assistance, why didn't they go out to get him then? I don't have kids of my own, obviously, but I'm 
incredibly hard pressed to believe that my parents would have just left me to my own devices after exhibiting such inexplicable behavior. Actually, I know my parents wouldn't have let this scary and bizarre behavior go on unchecked. They would have gotten in the car, found my ass, and not let me out of their sight until I'd seen some sort of medical professional. Because that's what parents do. For better or for worse, in overprotectiveness and in abundance of care, I think it's safe to say that any other set of parents would have gone to their child, no matter the distance, if they were faced with such an increasingly worrying situation. But for whatever reason, the Lespesis didn't go to Bryce. And the question of why not is one of the top three most confusing questions of this case. At this point, the highway patrol officers, they had their hands tied. They'd spent about 20 or 30 minutes with Bryce by now, and by their account, he was completely fine. Bryce was also 19 at the time, so he was, by all legal rights, an adult. And the police couldn't force him to do anything at that point other than to just tell him to go the hell home. Three guesses. First two don't count. Did Bryce head home? Of course not. (laughs) Two hours after the police left, which brings us to 11 p.m., which is hour 13 in Buttonwillow for those not keeping track at home, Karen and Michael saw another charge to their credit card at another Buttonwillow gas station where Bryce had purchased a drink. Desperate to know what Bryce was still doing there, They called back to the same roadside attendant who had brought Bryce gas at 9 a.m. that fucking morning. Christian, a truly generous and wonderful man, could tell how alarmed the list pieces were, and he told them two things. One, he would go out and check on Bryce again to see if he needed help of any sort, and two, Christian offered to drive behind Bryce, simultaneously tailing and following him, truth be told, to the I-5 highway and follow him for a few miles to make sure he finally got the hell on the road and headed towards home. No more fucking around. 30 minutes later, Christian calls the list pieces back. He had just seen Bryce off, having followed him for 10 miles down the freeway. Short of following him all the way to Laguna Niguel, Christian had done all, honestly, above and beyond, that he could. Truly all the accolades to this awesome man for going out of his way to help Bryce so many times during the inexplicably weird 13 hours he spent in Buttonwillow. Like I said, he's truly the unsung hero here. As the night goes on and Bryce allegedly drives further down the highway, his parents consistently call him, quizzing him about landmarks, street signs, help, any signs at all that he was seeing on the road to home. However, Bryce wasn't exactly playing ball with their line of questioning. He remained evasive, claiming he couldn't see any signs or that there weren't any signs, only continuing to tell his parents that he was fine and he'd be home at around 3.25 a.m., according to his GPS. At 2.09 a.m., now Friday, Bryce calls his parents. He says he's too tired to continue driving, and by our estimation, now knowing what we do, It's theorized that Bryce had been awake for about 48 hours at this point. He tells his parents that he's pulled off the road in a, quote, suburban area, and he's going to sleep for a few hours before he continues driving. 
Those frustrated with the list pieces still not going to get their own son will surely join me in shrieking with incredulity about why didn't they just go get him now? He was only a little over an hour away. Ugh. However, <laughs> the Las Pisas didn't offer to meet him wherever he was and tag team driving his car home while he continued sleeping, as I think most parents would have done at the very least. Instead, his mother merely agrees with his plan to sleep for a few hours and says that they'll see him in the morning. It would be the last time Karen would speak to her son. At 8 a.m. that morning, just six hours later, the doorbell at the front door of the Lispisa's house rang. Assuming it was Bryce finally arriving home after the last hellish 33 hours, Karen and Michael went to the door. Sure, it was a little weird he rang the doorbell and did just walk in, but after all the strangeness of the last few days, this fact was the last thing on their minds. Until they opened the door, and not Bryce, but a California Highway Patrol officer was standing there waiting for them to tell them the news that a 2003 Toyota Highlander registered in their name had been found abandoned off the side at Castaic Lake, a location two hours north from their house. And Bryce? He was nowhere to be found. Soon, more details about what seemed to have taken place at Castaic Lake began to emerge. The Highlander hadn't just been abandoned. The car had actually careened off a cell tower service road and plummeted down a 25-foot drop embankment. There was almost no blood found at the crash scene, except for a small spot on the passenger side headrest and a few drops in the back seat. The back window of the car seemed to have been kicked out from the inside. Had Bryce been trapped in the car, crawled back to the trunk, and kicked out the window himself to escape? But if he had, why had he left his cell phone and laptop in the car? Stranger still, his wallet and what appeared to be a weekender-like duffel bag filled with a few things were found outside of the car, on the ground a few feet away from the kicked-out window. So what the hell did that all mean? As investigators began combing the scene around the car and further into the lake area itself, they discovered something that made the puzzling scene seem all the more chilling. The tire tracks leading from the top of the embankment were examined and found to have showed that Bryce purposely hit the gas on his way off the 25-foot drop. That is to say, he didn't even try to hit the brakes as his car went off the road and would eventually flip bumper over tail. At this, investigators had to ask the question. Given the bizarre events Bryce had led his parents and friends through in the previous days, had he purposely driven off the embankment in an attempt to take his own life? Since Bryce allegedly didn't know the Castaic Lake very well, investigators theorized that it was possible that he had assumed on site that the hill would lead directly into the lake, thus allowing him the possibility to drown after his car hit the water. But that actually wasn't the case. The hill was actually a bit of an optical illusion. Whereas the lake seemed to be in a position just at the bottom of the hill, there was actually a large stretch of grassy land that was situated between the bottom of the embankment and where the lake was, which would have prevented any driving off the hill into the lake scenarios. The same day the car was found, the Parks Bureau conducted a search of the lake. He might not have been able to drive directly into it, but had Bryce still managed to drown in the lake? Or if not that, had he sustained a head injury from his crash and wandered into the surrounding hills, 
injured and unable to help himself, or had he even died from such an injury? Hundreds of officers assisted in the search on foot, on ATV, and by helicopter, while Castaic Lake itself was also searched. Throughout the weekend, the search for Bryce held strong, but nothing turned up on land or in water. Divers found no trace of him in the lake, and the initial search by cadaver dogs also turned up no sign of him. For all the world, it appeared to investigators Bryce had walked away from the crash site and vanished. Though signs of Bryce were essentially non-existent, the police did have evidence of his movements from before his crash. The road to the top of the hill Bryce had seemingly driven off of was, in fact, a service road for a cell phone tower, and this road, called Lake Hughes Road, was equipped with surveillance cameras. And they caught some footage that gave investigators only more questions than answers. In the early morning of that Friday, just three hours before California Highway Patrol would find the Highlander crash at the bottom of the hill at around 5 a.m., Bryce's car was caught driving up Lake Hughes Road. Not once, but twice. At 2.15 a.m., which was six minutes after he last spoke with his mother and told her he was pulling off the highway to get some sleep, the surveillance cameras recorded Bryce driving up the service road for the first time. About two hours later, at 4.29 a.m., the cameras recorded new footage of Bryce driving up the same road again. What in the hell was he doing driving up a desolate service road in the middle of the night? Not once, but twice. And what the hell had he been doing in the two hours between the first time he drove up the hill and the second time? Police believe Bryce drove off the hill and crashed anywhere after 4.30 a.m. but before 5.30 a.m. since that was when the CHP discovered the scene. So in the span of about an hour, Bryce managed to orchestrate the crash of his car without sustaining any seemingly dangerous injuries, kicked out the back window, and then vanished from the scene despite hundreds of people looking for this dude with hair that might as well have been a torch like that same day, something wasn't adding up. A few days into the search on September 5th, a jogger called into emergency services to report a brush fire that was located about three miles from the scene of Bryce's crash. However, when personnel arrived on the scene, what they found was no brush fire. Instead, what was on fire was actually a body. Of course, the question on everyone's mind became, was the body Bryce? However, after forensic testing, it was determined the body was not Bryce. Instead, it was the bullet-riddled remains of Lamondre Dion Miles, who had been murdered in an apparent hit after not paying a debt he owed, and the search continued. This time, with the addition of highly trained bloodhounds. On September 9th, bloodhounds were brought to the area to see if they could discover any leads that the cadaver dogs wouldn't have picked up. And in fact, they did. Two dogs working separately from one another picked up a previously undetected trail. The dogs followed a scent from the site of where the Highlander crashed, down to a dam by the lake, across the road, south onto the spillway, and then ended at a truck stop on Castaic Road. After three weeks, with no new signs or verifiable leads, the official search was called off. That didn't stop volunteer searchers, though, as they continued to post flyers and to organize their own searches. And police still did continue to do routine patrols of the area, even though it was no longer in an officially Bryce-centric capacity.
Despite the Las Pisas decidedly sticking their heads in the sand at this discovery, police began to wonder, what if they weren't supposed to be looking for a body because there was no body to find? What if Bryce had chosen to walk away from his life? The possibility is certainly a strong one, especially with the fact that over the seven years since Bryce has been missing, there have been a number of possible sightings of him. The majority of the potential sightings have been in the Pacific Northwest, mostly focused in Oregon, but there have also been a handful of people who have come forward to say that they thought they saw Bryce within the Santa Clarita homeless population. Santa Clarita is about a 25-minute drive on the highway and roughly 12 and a half miles from Castaic Lake. So if Bryce had willingly made Santa Clarita his new home, that would be hella fucking bold to have stayed so close. Then again, on another turn of the coin for this particular theory, he may be suffering from a traumatic brain injury from his crash and has no idea who he is or how close to home he actually is. On the anniversary of his disappearance, which, sidebar, that feels like a fucked up thing to call it, like having an anniversary of someone disappearing, but regardless, on the one-year anniversary of Bryce going missing, the state of affairs looked like this. None of Bryce's debit or credit cards had been used since August 31st, 2013. No identifying information like his social security number, his license number, or even his fingerprints getting put into his system had garnered any hits. There was almost no hard evidence for investigators to go on. Outside of the two spots of blood in the car and the scent of bloodhounds track to the nearby truck stop, there was virtually no physical evidence to assist with any search. The Los Angeles County Police actually announced that through their investigation, they found there was, quote, nothing to indicate Bryce met with foul play on land or in the water. Investigators believe that if Bryce was dead, they would have found his body by now. And then they made the interesting movement to officially label Bryce as a, quote, voluntarily missing person, which like record scratch double take moment here. Clearly that kind of bomb begs a lot of hashtag questions. So let's take the opportunity to dive into those before we explore some of the truly wild theories that have cropped up over the years. Question number one, what is the real history beyond Bryce's purported drug and alcohol use? Even prior to arriving at Sierra College, it's been reported Bryce had a record with police as he had been caught with MDMA before. But there isn't much known about this particular claim because he was a minor when it happened. Even if we choose to ignore that, his friends claim Bryce was a heavy drinker and a regular Vivance and Adderall user. But his parents claim that image is the furthest thing from the truth. I'm inclined to believe Bryce's friends because, as I mentioned earlier, the dichotomy between the idea of Bryce's parents had and the reality of who he was, as witnessed by his friends, is a pretty vast one. Parents want to believe the best about their children, to the point where they can be blinded by those same rose-colored ideas. What inspired Bryce to give away his possessions before his disappearance? Why did Bryce unexpectedly break up with Kim? What exactly was going on the night of August 28th, the night Bryce was acting so weird around Kim that she called his mother to say she didn't think he was in the right mind to drive? It's never been public knowledge about what Bryce was doing or saying that night to concern so many of his friends, but it's something I'm curious about because there must have been some really fucking concerning behavior going on to scare both his roommate and girlfriend into calling Karen. Question number two. 
What in the hell was Bryce doing in Buttonwillow for over 12 hours? Why was Bryce so reluctant to get on the phone with his mother when the police came to check on him in Buttonwillow? Why did Bryce lie to his parents about pulling off the road to sleep? Why was Bryce caught on camera two times driving up Lake Hughes Road, the service road that eventually dropped off into the embankment that his car would be found crashed at the end of? Why drive around the same area twice? What was Bryce doing for the two hours between when he was first caught on camera at Lake Hughes Road at 2.09 a.m. and then seen again at 4.29 a.m., following the same road that he would drive off just minutes later? Did Bryce purposely crash his car, or did he drive off the small embankment in an attempt to die by suicide? Why did Bryce purposely accelerate down the embankment towards Kaseic Lake, as the tire tracks would later prove? Did Bryce suffer any traumatic brain injuries, or I guess any injuries for that matter, after the crash that would incapacitate him? What the hell does the trail the bloodhounds found at the scene of the crash to the truck stop mean? Did Bryce leave the scene and get picked up by someone? Why did the police decide to label Bryce as a, quote, voluntarily missing person? Do they know something that we, the public, don't? What do the list pieces know that they haven't shared with the public? Because I'm willing to bet that there is quite a bit that they've remained tight-lipped about. And perhaps most importantly, I give you these two questions. What was Bryce so adamant about talking to his parents? I firmly believe that a lot of our questions would be answered if we knew what it was that Bryce needed to speak to his parents about. And finally, maybe a little bit obviously, why the fuck didn't the Las Vegas go get their son? They had so many opportunities to go get Bryce themselves and they just didn't. Honestly, I asked both of my own parents after giving them a rundown of this case, what they would have done in this situation. And they both firmly stated they would have come to get me themselves, even if I wasn't just a mere three hours away. There may not be a lot of answers discovered about what happened to Bryce with this question, but Jesus, God, the fact his parents just did not go get their son, who was clearly in crisis, is one of the most mind-blowing instances of this case. Honestly, that feels like the longest list of hashtag fucking questions that I've ever had about a case, which makes sense because of the utter lack of evidence and the complete confusion about any of Bryce's motives or his true mindset. The real dearth of information, honestly, is what leads there to being so many theories about what could have happened to Bryce. Did he suffer a psychotic episode brought on by the alleged lack of sleep and the overabundance of ADHD medication and alcohol he was using? Was he suffering from an undisclosed mental illness and decided to end his life and we just haven't found his body yet? Did Bryce suffering from a head injury after his accidental drive off the Lake Hughes Road embankment wander off and die somewhere in the surrounding area? Or did he wander off because he had lost a hold on his identity and doesn't know who he is? Or did Bryce, for reasons unbeknownst to us all, willingly decide to walk away from his life and now lives a new life that he made for himself? The Lispesis deny completely any suggestion that Bryce had any substance abuse problems, that he had any drinking issues, that he would have willingly left, or that he was anything less than their own shining boy wonder. How dare you suggest otherwise? 
And it's here where I'm not saying that to investigators that they may have very heavily glossed over their relationship with their son for the sake of keeping up appearances. But like, who am I to tell you what to think? <laughs> well, I don't believe Brace's parents had anything to do directly with the events of Brace's disappearance. I do think there are things that they haven't been fully forthright about. And the real insights that they would have probably would add much more information, background, and context for some of the choices Bryce made on his 27-hour journey down to Laguna Niguel. For their part, the list pieces have come out to say that they only believe Bryce could be suffering from amnesia of some sort or that their only son is dead, which that's just bleak as fuck and really begs the question of what aren't you telling us and why can't you be honest about your son? <laughs> Personally, I am in line with the investigators when it comes to subscribing to just one theory about what happened to Bryce. There's a reason they labeled him as a voluntarily missing person. That reason, though, isn't public knowledge. I believe the police have and know more information about Bryce, a living, breathing, healthy Bryce, than they can share because they've had contact with him. And I believe he's asked them not to relay that information with his family. He's an adult, so any request for privacy he may have asked of the police, well, they'd be beholden to honor it. Maybe I'm naively hopeful, but I think Bryce probably was in a bit of an emotional crisis when he first left campus. However, I think all of the time on the road either helped him gather his thoughts and create an opportunity to at least get a head start on running away, or that this was a plan Bryce had had for at least some time, a plan to step away from the life that he knew and to create a new one for himself. I realize being able to live undetected for a number of years takes some kind of Jason Bourne levels of finesse, but I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility, especially if he had help, which I believe he did. I think it's entirely possible that Bryce connected with some old friends from Illinois, where he had lived for 17 of his 19 years, and they helped him orchestrate his exit and start off on this new life. One of the things that leads me to believe Bryce either met someone intentionally in his plan to leave or that he happened upon someone who could help is that trail the bloodhounds found leading to the truck stop. It rings reminiscent of the Maura Murray case where her own trail stopped just down the highway from her own car crash. In both of these cases, I think either scenario is plausible. They were rendezvousing with someone or they happened upon someone who offered to help them. Whether that possible encounter with a stranger ended positively or negatively, that's something I can't quite commit to yet. This August will be seven years since Bracelet Pisa, a talented budding artist, beloved friend, and owner of a truly heartwarming smile, was last seen or heard from. Wherever he is in this world living the life he always wanted or in the next, I hope he's both happy and at peace with himself. Because from everything I've read and researched about Bryce, that sounds like all he ever wanted and what he was chasing during those last few days of August, 2013. And I hope he found them or whatever it was that he was looking for. I'll be back here next week with another hashtag fucking question loaded story to tell you all. Before I sign off, I want to give a shout out to the newest members, count them plural, <laughs> of the Da Patreon crew, Kelly Altamora and Charlotte Ebison. Your support truly means the world. So thank you both for helping to keep the figurative dark as hell lights on. <laughs> While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find dark as hell on Instagram at dark as hell podcast 
all one word, and on Twitter at darkashellpod. Again, all one word. If you're interested in joining the Da Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash darkashellpodcast to see what level might tickle your spooky fancy. I just added a cool new tier to the Patreon, so you should definitely go give it a look. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkashellpodcast at gmail.com. While you wait, if you wouldn't mind rating, subscribing, reviewing, all that good stuff, that would also be great too. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again.